Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to my sermon podcast. It is great to be back with you again. Uh, Today, I'm going to be reflecting on a text and preaching a sermon that's not necessarily, well, it's not connected to a sermon series. Every once in a while at Urban Village, we have a, a Sunday that falls in between sermon series. And so we have what we call each of our sites a freebie. So each of the pastors kind of preaches something that either is speaking to them or that relates to their context or their site. So today I'm going to read a passage that is one of my favorites in the scriptures, and it may not be uh, for the reason you may think it is, and I'll explain more in a second. So I'm going to read a passage. This comes from the book of Acts in the New Testament, and this is chapter 9, and it's going to be verses uh, 1 through 19a. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. May God's blessing be on the hearing and living out of this word. So my wife and I, a few weeks ago, for to celebrate our anniversary, we went to Charleston, South Carolina. And it was our first time there, had a wonderful time, and tried to both relax and also see some of the things that people recommend when you go to Charleston. One of those things that people, many people mentioned was you, you have to go see the angel oak tree, which I had never heard of, but it's a particular tree outside of Charleston, not too far, but we drove to this tree. And this is no ordinary tree. It actually has its own Wikipedia entry. It's a tree that's estimated to be about between 400 and 500 years old. It's 65 and a half feet tall. It measures 28 feet in circumference. 
and its longest branch distance is 187 feet in length. So it has become a tourist attraction. People drive up to it and go and, and look at it, and we did the same. And and certainly it is worth going to. When I approached the tree and my wife and I were walking around it, you, you just have a sense of peace being in this uh, around this part of God's creation. People were, of course, taking pictures and selfies, and we were doing the same. And and then we walked a little bit away from the tree, and we sat down on this bench. And it was while I was on this bench that something struck me. And that is, as I'm looking at this big, enormous, amazing uh, work of nature and God, I noticed that there were other trees that were surrounding the angel oak tree, and my attention was drawn to those trees. And I thought to myself, you know, these trees are pretty remarkable in and of themselves, in that they are not as tall, not perhaps as beautiful as the angel oak, but still they're trees, which is kind of a miracle. Trees by themselves are kind of a miracle anyway. And so I started reflecting on these other trees, not the angel oak. And that got me thinking about one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And that's why I felt led to read this passage today. So this story, most people talk about it as the conversion of Saul, one of the most famous events in the New Testament, or they'll talk about it as sometimes you may hear someone say, I had a a road to Damascus experience. And when they mention that, they're talking about this particular story. Saul was, as we picked up a little bit in this passage, was at first a persecutor of Christians, but he had this amazing transformation, this amazing conversion. And it's mentioned three times in the book of Acts here and then two other places. So we get a sense that this was a pretty big deal. It was the conversion of this man who was this strong persecutor of Christians, would go to any length in order to persecute uh, Christians. It talks about here in the passage that he was going from Jerusalem to Damascus. This is no ordinary trip. This is about 150 miles. So Saul is so convinced that uh, followers of Jesus must be persecuted. He's willing to travel this distance to try to to persecute them. But he has this uh, unbelievable conversion. And after this, not long after this, of course, his name is changed to Paul. And he becomes, in my Bible dictionary, the most describes it as the most effective missionary of early Christianity and the church's first theologian. Many of the books of the Bible later on in the New Testament, books like Romans and Philippians and Galatians and First and Second Corinthians, all are letters written by Paul. So it's a remarkable transformation. So people look to this, not only they're inspired maybe by the conversion if they're fans of Paul, but also it's a remarkable story, the voice coming from the heavens, the light coming down. And we may think of other notable characters in the Bible that have these unbelievable conversion or experiences with God. The story of Moses comes to mind when God speaks to him through the burning bush. Jesus has a couple of these experiences, the baptism, the voice calling down from the heavens. He has an experience called the transfiguration, where Jesus becomes this pure light, pure uh, white, and everyone is around him are amazed by what has happened. 
stories of the prophets and a sense of God speaking to them. So we people love these stories about these conversions and the remarkable things that God can do. And while I think these stories are good and, and powerful on their own, whenever I read stories like this, I always look for who are the other characters in this story? Who is somebody that I can relate to? I've never had necessarily a, a road to Damascus moment. I've had little moments over my lifetime where I've had a strong sense that God is speaking to me or nudging me in a certain direction, but I've never had anything like Saul had or like Moses had or anything like that. So because of that, I always look for people who are on the margins of these stories. And that's why I love this story so much from Acts, because we get a sense of this man named Ananias. Now, when you talk about Saul's conversion, Ananias is mentioned and has a role, but certainly does not, or is not elevated certainly as, as much as Paul is. There are lots of St. Paul churches around the world. There are, Paul is in stained glass in churches around the world. There are not many images of Ananias in stained glass. Though I did, I googled this week and I found one. It's at a, a church in, an Anglican church in Rome, and I loved the description of it. So that there's the stained glass and it says that Ananias restoring sight to Saul on the stained glass and it describes the church. And then it says, by the workroom, <laughs> which I don't understand. So I, I'm imagining that this stained glass is not in the sanctuary, but instead is somewhere I'm imagining in the bowels of the church. So poor Ananias doesn't even get stained glass in the sanctuary. And yet I think his story I think his story is just as important as Paul's is because of the nature of what he did. Ananias goes through a conversion too. It doesn't get quite as much attention, of course. It's a quiet conversion. Here is this man, Saul, persecuting Christians. Ananias is there. He gets this sense that God is speaking to him, and he is called to go to this man who, this persecutor, and say, I want, God is saying to him, I want you to lay hands on him because I've got big things planned. And we can appreciate and totally understand Ananias's response to this saying, Lord, are you sure about this? I don't think you have quite thought this through. And so Ananias, perhaps as a way to remind this voice, this heavenly voice, let's walk through this again. And, and Say, who again is Saul, this persecutor? Maybe you have the names mixed up. Maybe you want me to go to somebody else and do this. But the voice, the sense of God's presence is insistent. And then the conversion happens, and it happens in a very small way. The passage just says three words. So Ananias went. So Ananias went after a little give and take with the Lord about this. Verse 17 says, So Ananias went and entered the house. Ananias, we don't know, I don't know if it was a complete conversion, if Ananias was fully on board with this, but he went trusting and having faith. And Ananias does not get the attention that Paul does, certainly, but his story is just as important. Ananias is kind of like those trees that maybe get overshadowed by the large tree. And I think that is descriptive of so many of us in our own walks of faith. 
I think whenever we think about going through or taking on some act of faith in our own lives, there are various things that stop us. Maybe it's believing a certain thing, having that kind of conversion, or maybe doing something. And there are lots of things that might stop us. Now, we can think of a couple things that might come to mind. We may say, well, I don't have the time for it, or I don't have the expertise, or I'm afraid what people will think or not think of, of me if I go through this kind of conversion, or if I take on this this act that doesn't quite make a lot of sense. And maybe, too, we may think to ourselves, well, this thing that I'm going to believe or not believe, or this thing that I'm going to do or not to, it really won't make that big of a difference. If I don't do it, no harm will come to anybody else. No one will notice if I don't do this act of faith or of love. Or we may think to ourselves, I won't do it as well as somebody else. So we may think of these stories, these amazing conversion stories, like, well, I've never been through that before. Or we may see someone write or say something or perform this heroic act of of faith or of courage. And we think to ourselves, well, it's not like this other person. So why even bother? And friends, that's when I think we must call upon the courage and the example of Ananias. I had a, had a conversation with a friend the other day, and I think we've all probably experienced things like this. And she was talking about how her uh, father was, whom she loves, but also will occasionally send her emails that are uh, kind of racist. And she said, talking about how uh, her father sent her this email, this um, uh cartoon that spoke poorly of Muslims. And she had this sense, I think, that that many of us do sometimes. I think, well, I'm just going to let it go. It's, you know, I don't want to get into a fight. It's not going to make any difference. It'll, it'll just make things worse. Or we may think to ourselves, there's so many heroes doing these amazing things. My speaking up is not going to do anything. But it's when we are in these situations, that is when we must take those steps that Ananias did. If we think either we don't have the expertise or that it won't make a difference or we're afraid of what people think, maybe we can reflect on and just remember those words that describe Ananias' own response. So Ananias went. We don't know if he went fully convicted. We don't know what kind of conversion that he went to. It was not the huge deal that Saul's conversion was about. So Ananias went, and he took those steps. And that's why I love this story so much. It's not necessarily because of Saul. It's because of Ananias and the example that he gives to me and the courage that he gives me when I feel called to take small steps that no one may notice, but that do make a difference. So this weekend is Memorial Day, a time certainly when many will be remembering the, those who have died serving our country. Whenever I think of Memorial Day, I hearken back to, uh, there was a few years when I was a, a young adult when I would go with my grandparents and they, they would take Memorial Day. That would be the time when they would go to the grave sites of their parents who didn't necessarily serve in the military, but they would go anyway. Memorial Day would be the time that they would go and plant flowers or just to make sure that everything was okay with these grave sites. And so this also, because that's kind of where my mind was, I came across this really interesting story last week in the Indianapolis Star newspaper. It's about a story about a man named Jeff Purvis. And 
Jeff Purvis uh, talks about how he, he considers himself a recovering racist. And the story said that he describes, subscribes to the theory that just as an alcoholic is never cured, that a racist is never absent of bigotry, but he also feels he has the capacity to acknowledge and control this weakness. He grew up hearing stories uh, about his ancestors, and one story in particular centered around a boy named Price, or more specifically, an enslaved uh, African-American boy. Now, family lore had it that Jeff's ancestors had moved from Virginia to Indiana, and that eventually Price, this enslaved boy, was freed, perhaps as a way for people to talk about, as we all do many times with their ancestors. Maybe we paint them with a, uh, or look at them with rose-colored glasses. But the more Jeff looked into his background, Price's background, the more he became to believe that, in fact, Price wasn't freed. Indiana was a state that prohibited slavery, but it wasn't uncommon for others to look away if there were enslaved people working and living on people's homes and farms. In the midst of his research, he started looking for his ancestors' graveyard as a way to determine if Price had a gravesite, and he miraculously found the graveyard, but there was no gravesite for Price. In the article, Jeff is quoted as saying that freeing a slave wasn't a casual matter. It was a legal proceeding. It would have had a paper trail. Freed slaves needed to have documentation that they had to carry. So because there was no paper trail, because there was no gravesite, all of these things made Jeff realize that Price most likely was not free, that his ancestors indeed were not these grand people who had freed him, but instead had kept him as a slave. And as he thought about this more and more, he became convinced that Price needed an apology and a proper burial. And so as he kind of reflected on if he should do this or how we should go about doing this. This is when Charlottesville happened a couple years ago. And in the article, Jeff said that Charlottesville was the catalyst that drove him to what he is doing now. He talked about how astonished he was that there were people who had this such a strong hate agenda. And that's when he really got energized to memorialize Price. So he contacted the local, local township trustee office and requested permission to add a headstone in this grave in this graveyard, and his request was approved. So now there is this graveyard that says Price Joyce dates known only to God, free at last. And so he had this service. He brought in a a pastor, Reverend James Foster, to do a small memorial service. And Jeff said he couldn't be sure if he was if that's where Price's was actually buried or not, and he finally decided it didn't matter. He was going to place a monument for him. We just need to have some sort of remembrance that he was there, that he lived. And I was struck by this story for so many reasons, and actually on my Podbean page, I'll put a link to a video that shows this story from this uh, from the Indianapolis Star, too, so that you can watch it. I'm attracted to this story because, not because again, there's a conversion of sorts that goes on. Jeff talked about his own uh, upbringing and throwing around the N-word every once in a while and not thinking anything of it, and and then beginning to shift in his own thinking 
Not that he is perfect by any means that he says, but he just started making small steps of his own conversion about what he believed. But then also the fact that he went through these steps to do something that no one until someone heard about this was going to write an article about that. No one is going to make a big deal out of. It's going to take some money out of his own pocket. There were no ancestors. There was Price's family wasn't around, but Jeff felt like this is something that I need to do. Even if no one will take notice, he felt led to take these steps during or in the article, Reverend Foster, who was the one who officiated over this service, said that if everybody takes a little step in the right direction, that's going to make things better. Jeff is beginning to connect with that. No matter how small he thinks his steps were, they are making a big difference in the lives of those he doesn't even know. So much of our faith life is made up of these small steps of having our hearts converted into hearts of love and justice And also, so much of our lives are made up with the possibilities of these small things that no one will probably take notice of. We live our lives much more like Ananias than we do Paul. Most of us. Every once in a while, someone will be truly lifted up and will know about a conversion experience and they'll be in the spotlight and take real leads in the church. But most of us are in Ananias' shoes. He is not mentioned hardly at all in the Bible There's a stained glass of him, but it's in the workroom, near the workroom at a church. And yet he, I think, is truly our model. So as you think about taking steps in your own faith life, and as you think about it, well, it really doesn't matter if I don't grow in my faith. It doesn't really matter if I do this small thing because it's not going to make a difference. Friends, remember Ananias. Remember those lovely trees too near the angel oak that also uh, are important. Take heart and encourage by these things and live out the Ananias life in your own way too so that you can stand out even in the shade of others. Amen. Friends, thank you for listening once again. I'll be back next week as we start a new sermon series uh, at our church. And so uh, until the next time, you can always reach out to me, Christian at urbanvillagechurch.org and my website, christiancoon.com. Also, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this very often, but I send out about a monthly little e-newsletter that gives a reflection and talks about some other things. So if you'd like to subscribe to that, let me know, drop me an email, and I'll be happy to add you to that list too. It's coming out in a couple weeks. So until the next time, friends, may the peace of Christ be with you.